Today we're going to continue in our, uh, our Acts series on the kingdom now. And as I, as I was putting this together this week, it, it made me think a lot about the ebb and flow of life. You know, uh, we, we talked just a minute ago in our prayer time about life and anxiety. It seems like you're hearing that word anxiety come up more and more all the time. And, and you know, if you notice that there's a lot of pressure in life, man, I mean, the older I get, you know, you would think you would uh, get a little more accustomed to this, but it seems like it just never stops. You know, life continues to be life, right? And life continues to throw things at you and life continues to throw you curveballs. But at the same time, when when you see a, a, a life and, and culture and w- the world changing around you all the time, it seems like every time you turn around, uh, society's changed, culture's changed, and, and there's new things going on in the world. There's a lot of pressure to living. But then at the same time, we see this God who constantly reminds us with phrases like fear not. You know, I read this week, and I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's, if it's 100% true, it, but I, I wouldn't doubt it. Someone said that there's, there's over 300 times in the Bible that the word do not fear or fear not or some way of saying do not be afraid comes up. Some go so far as to say there's almost 365, one for each day of the week. I read one person this week that said fear and fearing not is one of the most talked about concepts in all of scripture. I don't doubt that at all. Life is full of pressure, but God gives us a path And what I love about his word is that God is what I would call a presupposing God. Every time he tells us to fear not, it's because he knows that we do, right? When Jesus told the disciples, do not let your heart be troubled, why did he say that? He said it because he knew their heart was troubled. He knew that life was throwing a bunch of curveballs at them. And and when you read Acts, in fact, I would say as I read the book of Acts and as I continue to kind of spend a lot of time in the book of Acts, one of the things I notice about the book itself is it's constant curves. It's it's almost like a a whitewater rafting trip. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those before, but you you never know where the river's gonna go and how the water's gonna take you and how the channel's gonna move you. And that's kind of how I would say the book of Acts is. It's it's constantly moving, it's constantly turning. There's a lot of chaos in the book of Acts. And when you, in fact, I would even go so far as to say that if you're one of these people that like a lot of structure and you don't like surprises and you like a plan and you like predictability, Jesus is gonna be hard for you. Yeah, It's gonna be tough on you, man, right? And, you know, I used to be a guy in my 20s that loved a lot of change. And now the older I get, I find myself like, I don't like change as much. You know, I don't know what that says about me. Maybe it just says I'm getting older. But it's difficult. And what you see in the book of Acts is that the the path was very much like a whitewater rafting trip. It was very unpredictable. And let me tell you something. When times are uncertain and when anxieties are high, you better learn to cling to your God. You better learn to stay with your God. The more I think about the people in the book of Acts, I, I thought, you know, what, if we could, if we could like look into their life, like maybe, maybe look like, like this image here. If we could, if we were all on the outside looking in, what, what would that, what would we find with those people? I mean, we're standing outside a window looking in at what appears to be a party. Evidently, they love Mac computers. I don't know uh, much more about them. But you can gather information from that, right? If, if, if that were, the, if that were the, the little church in Acts, if that were the, the budding church in Acts, and we were all outside the window, and we looked in, 
to their lives, what do you think we might see? What will we, what will we see? Well, when we read the book of Acts, we do look into that window and we see that the dead were raised. We see that people were healed. We see that governments feared them. But we also see the fact that we don't even know their name. Do you not find that fascinating? We don't even know who they were. We know a few of them. But these people were a band of misfits. Life was stressful, but I don't get the impression that they were stressed. I think they were sent. I don't, I don't think they were fearful. Oh, there were times they were fearful, but I don't think they lived afraid. They lived faithful. In a world that was totally chaotic, they had the power of God. They had the power of God resting on them. And today I want to talk to you about that very thing. In a life full of chaos, what is one of the single markers of their lives? And I would say it was, if you said, Jason, boil the book of Acts down to a sentence, boy, that'd be really hard. I don't know that I could do it, but I would talk a lot in that moment about the power of God on a group of people. The power of God on a group of people. If I could boil this morning's sermon into a sentence for you, I would probably say it like this, that his power comes through his presence. His power comes through his presence. So what, what, what do you mean by that, Jason? Well, let me tell you, don't, don't listen to me, don't get distracted in the book of Acts by the miracles. Don't get distracted by the healings. Don't get distracted by all the, the amazing things. We could go on and on about vipers biting Paul and him shaking them off. We could, you know, there, there's all kinds of things that were going on in that time of life. I mean, there was a lot of supernatural stuff happening that brought glory to Jesus. And that, but I, I would say don't, amidst all that neatness, don't get distracted by one simple thing. There was nothing, nothing more amazing in the book of Acts than these people's devotion to God. There was nothing more amazing in the book of Acts. There was nothing more potent in the book of Acts. There was nothing more revealing in the book of Acts than their devotion to God. Their devotion to God was monumental. And if I could look into the window of their party, if I could look into the window of their life, what I believe we would see more than anything, if we could talk to them today, what they would talk about was their devotion to God. They were together and they worshiped because God's power comes through his presence and they were committed to his presence. They were committed to being in his presence together. And before you think about me going into a sermon today about church attendance, I'm not. I'm not. But you know, about the, we, the, the longer we come into the world of statistics and research, it seems like Christian research is all around us in the last 10 to 15 years. And it's been very helpful. But I would tell you this, one particular statistic that breaks my heart, but I would say it's very much true, is that the average Christian, the average Christian goes to church 1.4 times a month. That's the average believer. 1.4 times a month 
is the average person's presence among the brethren. I don't think we see that in the book of Acts at all. I think what we see is a group of people that were so devoted to the power of God, they wanted to be in the presence of God. And that's different than just getting in a car and coming to church, isn't it? That's way different. I didn't really know, to be honest with you, I didn't really know what to title this this morning. This may be the weirdest, strangest sermon title I've ever come up with in my life, but it's the best I had. I'm going to call it God Clingers. God Clingers. The way I see this group of people is that they latched on to their God and they didn't let go. They grabbed on and they didn't let go. And I think the Lord showed up. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2. You may ask yourself, gosh, Jason, it's been like six weeks. We've been chapter two and four. There's more there, you know. Um, Yeah, but let me tell you why we're spending so much time in Acts two and four. We're about to get out of that, by the way. If you're getting weary of Acts two and four, just hold on. Let me tell you why we're spending so much time in Acts two and four. Friends, this is the very foundation of the New Testament church right here. Acts two through four. It's the very foundation And if you know anything about building a physical structure, you better get the foundation right. Because if you don't, you will spend money soon. Right? You ever had to do that? Not fun. I asked a friend of mine one time who is a major construction person who builds large, large structures. I asked him, why is the foundation so important? I've heard about it all my life. Why is it so important? He said, it really comes down to gravity. He said, gravity wins, period. Gravity wins. He said, but do you want to pay in year five or year 50? When do you want to pay? So you better spend time because gravity's pulling at you. Well, culture's pulling at us and pulling at us and life is pulling at us. And these people found a way, I believe, to live totally different. So let's read about it. Acts 2, we're going to pick it up right there in verse 42 again. The Bible says in Acts chapter two, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves. Don't miss, don't read right past that. They were continually, ongoingly devoting themselves to the apostles, what? Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Here comes your worship. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions as they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. Hey, so listen, if I ever decide we're going to church seven days a week, don't get mad. There's a biblical precedent right there just saying, Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness of heart and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with the people. And then here's the sentence. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. You see a different rhythm there. I've used that word a lot in the last few weeks. There's a different rhythm. This wasn't just about worship attendance. It was not just about that. It was about a lifestyle of who they were. So how does that break down? 
Well, let's first this morning, if we're going to talk about God's power and that his power comes through his presence, and listen, I know that the Holy Spirit is in me, and I know that Christ in me is the hope of glory. I understand that. But friends, I'm also going to tell you something. Something happens when God's people come together. It just does. It just does. Something happens when God's people come together. His heart moves in a different way, and things take place. So let's start, before we get into looking at these people's lives clinging to God, let's talk about what worship wasn't. Well, it wasn't defined by numbers. It wasn't defined by numbers. There are numbers in the book of Acts, but it wasn't defined by numbers. Bigger wasn't better. You know what? Bigger's not better. You know what's better? Better's better. Bigger's not better. America, America is the land, the test case we are the icon to the world that you can, you can be a, a nation that has major mega churches and that's fine, but that has no bearing on faithfulness to God in society. You can fill up a room, you can fill up a room with an easy Jesus. You can fill up a stadium or the Bridgestone with a God that really doesn't demand much of you just that you come, that's pretty easy to do. And we see it in almost every major city across this nation. Bigger's not better. One of the things I've determined as I've looked at the book of Acts is they were a large church, but they weren't this. They weren't large in one room. Look at that image. When you think of a lot of churches today, that's what you think about. We think about the bigger we can be, the better we can be. And hey, listen, I don't know how big Clearview is going to get. I don't know how big, how much we're going to grow. But I can tell you this, if you look at anything in the book of Acts, what you see is they were large. But hear me, friend, they were not large in one room. They were not large in one room. They were large in pockets of 50 here and 20 there in, in this house and in that house. And they were, they were house churches by the hundreds and then by the thousands and by the tens of thousands. But we, we, didn't, we didn't see them converge on this one big, you know, dome thing every week. They, and, and, and say, what do you, well, then what do you mean? I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that that's bad, don't hear, me. don't hear me, I did not say that's bad. And I didn't say that house churches were perfect and I didn't say that house churches were bad and the big, the big temple, I didn't say any of that. What I'm saying is, friends, don't get lost in the fact that we think somehow if we can have just bigger and better, we'll be better and we won't. We won't. Bigger doesn't always mean better. I ask myself sometimes, I wonder, you see a trend across our nation for the people that are willing to go to church often go to churches where I think it's easy to hide. It's easy to hide in a big crowd. You know what I love about Clearview? There's no hiding here. You can't hide here. We're not going to let you hide. We're not. I don't care how big we get. We're going to keep uncovering rocks in our lives to bring us to the forefront. Worship was not about numbers. It wasn't defined by attendance. I'll tell you what it also wasn't defined by. It wasn't defined by a date. 
What, just what do you mean? Uh, uh, by a date on the calendar. It wasn't just one day a week. You can see that in Acts 2. It says they went day to day. Now, I'm not saying that that makes them better Christians. Don't think that. You know, it's easy. Because let me tell you what we do. If Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter, if social media has taught us anything, it has taught us that the glory of God rests in us comparing our lives to somebody else's. Right? If, if, if social media has taught us anything, it's taught us how to compare somebody else's fabulous life against my not-so-fabulous life. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that they're better Christians because we, we, we are now in a culture of comparison, constantly comparing our lives to other people. I'm not saying that we should say that that's the target, that they go every single week. What I am saying is that the power of God was found in the presence of God and those people clung to God so much so that they really did want to be with each other and with him. It's a different way of living. It's a different rhythm of life. It wasn't just defined by a date on the calendar. I'll tell you what else it wasn't defined by. Worship wasn't defined by amenities. You hear me use that word a lot. In a world of retail, amenity-driven life, man, you, you don't see that in the book of Acts. You know, my entire career in ministry, my entire career in ministry, if there's been one trend that has not gotten better, it's only gotten worse, it was this. And I could show you statistic after statistic, but it hasn't changed and it hasn't gotten better. That by the time the average Christian student leaves home at the age of 18, 19, 20, whenever they ship off into the world, the statistics tell us like way more than 50, 60, 70% walk away from their faith forever. And you got to ask yourself, how can that be? Because it's true. It's true. It's happening all around. Studies are coming out all the time. I get them almost weekly about how the American church is doing that. Just plummeting slowly. We're losing grounds. Our kids walk away. And yet, let me tell you what happens in my world. In the world of pastors, let me tell you what happens. There's an intense pressure on us to try to invent ways to jump up and down and scream and make people want to pick us. So what you see is churches kind of getting on what I would call the hamster wheel. You ever seen a hamster wheel? Just churches getting on that, the hamster wheel. And it's coming out of a good motive. It's not coming out of a bad motive. It's coming out of a good motive. And the motive is trying to do anything to make kingdom life desirable, to get people's attention, to say, look, there's a different way. Look, there's a better way. And I'm saying, isn't it fascinating that they did not have that problem in Acts 2? They didn't have that problem at all. They were trying to figure out what to do with people. The Lord was adding to the church, it says, daily to those who were being saved. And here we are in 2019 doing anything we can to make our churches more relevant. Well, friends, let me tell you, we're not relevant. How relevant is it to today's culture to say, repent? If you don't, you're going to spend an eternity in hell. That's never going to be popular 
I mean, ever. That's never going to be like easy to say. That's never going to be something that everybody goes, well, my gosh, I think I should just go repent then. You know? No. So, and I'm not saying churches are selling out. I'm not saying that at all. Some are. I'm not saying we're not. But there's a lot that aren't selling out. But what I am saying is this. How do we typically measure? How do we typically measure, oh, my church is doing well? I can tell you how guys like me measure it. Attendance is up. Budget is solid. Life is good. And I'm going to tell you, in this book, if you want to use a real metric, some of us need to be getting our head chopped off from time to time. I mean, as in literally, not metaphorically. Some of us need to be getting arrested from time to time. But all we do is pray for safety. All we do is pray for ease. And that's not what is going on here. You see, I think the difference is with the book of Acts is the reason that you don't see the decline in all the issues we're facing today. They were God clingers. They cling to the presence of God and they would not walk away. They would not walk away. And let me tell you, let me tell you parents, I've got boys too. Let me tell you grandparents, many of you bring your grandkids to church. Let me tell you, one thing about Clearview that we're not and this is by design, and this is way before Jason Cruz came here. One thing that Clearview has intentionally held on to, ask Shane Pass and Jenny, we've intentionally, especially in our kids' ministry, not chased the trendy hamster wheel. You know why? Because you've got to keep up. You've got to spend more money all the time to stay, to stay hip. But there are timeless principles that never change, and I am so proud of our children's ministry in kids' ministry that has said, no, we're going to point toward discipleship and we're going to make disciples. We're not going to make fans of a church. We're not just going to make attenders. So when your kids come through our kids' ministry, let me tell you, by the time they're already in middle school, they're serving the kingdom of God on Sunday mornings. I love that. Clearview is not a hipster church. We're not a trendy church. We're, and, and I don't, and I don't, and, 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 and there again, do not hear me say, there are churches that are going after the, the, those that are completely, never even got near Jesus Christ at all. And that is, you gotta have churches of all flavors and sizes. Man, I am not railing against that at all. Please don't hear that. I'm not. What I am saying is, if all we do is chase the current trend, you're going to need very deep pockets and a new staff about every 10 years, maybe less, because the trends change constantly. We can't get on that hamster wheel. No, let me tell you why you don't see these people walking away. You don't hear, you don't hear about some of the things that the modern church faces because they clung to the power of God. So how does their worship, when you look at worship and you look at what it really is, how does it affect daily life, my daily life? That's the question I asked. 
What, what's the, for you to find the power of the presence of God as a lifestyle, not just a way of attending church once a week. How does worship affect my daily life? Well, I think there's a few ways when you can see uh, pull, pulling from scripture and what we can find. These people were radically devoted. Don't, as I said, don't get distracted by all the healings and miracles. They were radically devoted to Jesus Christ. I think there's a couple of ways that worship can affect your daily life. And that is worship guards my soul against counterfeits. Look at the first commandment, Exodus 20, verse one. The Bible says that the Lord God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Why would God in the Ten Commandments give us as the first commandment? Why would he give us as the first commandment? Don't chase idols because he knows we are prone to do it. He knows we're prone to do it. He knows we're prone to walk away, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, the old hymn says. Why would he give us that word? Because he knows, Luther said, that, that commandment right there is the only one that matters. I'm paraphrasing, this is Jason Cruz on Luther. That one's the only one that matters. Could you get that one right? The other, other nine fall into place. You should have no other gods before me. You see, when these people, when you look at their life, they were devoted to the presence of God. When you're devoted to worship, I didn't mean coming to church. I'm talking about, that's a byproduct of it. But when you are devoted to a lifestyle of devotion, when you're devoted to a worshiping the Lord God, let me tell you what you do. You set the agenda for what you adore. Now, I hope you heard that. When you are tuned in to the power of God. And when worshiping the Lord your God, when that commandment right there on the screen, the first commandment, when that commandment, when that is your beacon, let me tell you what you do. You set the agenda for what you adore. And let me tell you something. So let's flip that around for a minute, friends. When church is just a part of your life, guess who sets the agenda? Everything but the Lord God. If church is just a part of your life, hear me closely. If church is just a part of your life and if church attendance is just a part of your life, then let me tell you who sets the agenda for your home, for your heart, for your money, for your kids, for your parenting, everything that screams the loudest in the moment. But when Jesus is your prime devotion, and you adore him, you can make it. You can make it. You see, your soul, your, your mind, your heart, your will, your emotions, your soul is going to be guided by something. And this world is full of counterfeits. You know what breaks my heart the most? I'm going off script now. I hope I don't make anybody mad. You know what breaks my heart the most? And it's easy to do, by the way. We chase things 
And most of what we chase and most of what we obsess over and most of what really gets the bulk of our time and what gets our energy, you know, you know what most of those things are? They're things that matter in the next few months or the next few years. But they're not the things that matter 25 years from now. And I want to say a word to all the parents in the room. I am a parent, 14 and 8. Last book I wrote was called In the Thick of It. And, and I said, I'm not writing a how-to on raising boys. I mean, nobody's that stupid. It's just, I'm, I, I wrote In the Thick of It because I, Michelle and I, we're in the thick of it, man. And I mean, we, we, have, we honestly, we do. The further I go into parenting, the more I realize my parents were winging it. Behind closed doors. Going, did we, what do we do? I don't know. Pick, pick a lane. I mean, you know, pick something. But I'm going to tell you as a word to parents, I, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings at all, but I want to tell you something. My entire Christian journey, the statistics get worse every year for the numbers of our kids as Christians that walk away from their faith. And I'm telling you, parents, you... You can't stop that sometimes. I mean, sometimes your kids just go off a cliff, man, and it happens. We know that. I mean, we know that, right? Sometimes you, don't, you did all you can do. But I want to say to you, if we want to capture the heart of our home, then we better reconstruct and look at the values that we're valuing of what we want our kids to be when they're 50, not when they're 15. Because I'm making decisions right now for my sons and I'm creating a home for my sons that is, whether I, whether I want to realize it or not, good or bad, the decisions Michelle and I are making right now as parents, they are shaping Colin Tucker for the next 40 and 50 years. And there's no real playbook for that. That's why I think there is a lot of pressure. But it doesn't just extend to parents. It extends to all of us. We are obsessed about the things that are coming at us in the next few moments, not the next 40 years. And I'm saying when you worship the Lord and when the Lord is your beacon and when the Lord is your guiding post, then you will not worship them and you will not serve them. You will stay away from the counterfeits. There's more. I need to move on. What else does worship do? Worship insulates my life with real love from real believers. Write down Hebrews 10, verse 23. It insulates my life. Man, when you read this verse in Hebrews, look at what it says. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own or assembling together. Meaning, literally, don't forsake gathering together. Don't forsake the assembly. As, as is the habit of some. Evidently, they were facing this in, in that day too. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is Hebrews 10, 23 saying? He is saying, you need to be together, worshiping the Lord together. Because something happens when we get together and we're able to come in out of the rain. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that it's detox. 
I would even go so far to say that when we assemble, just like right now, worshiping the Lord together, we come in out of the rain. You spend all day, all week, walking through the muck and the mire of the corporate world, of the labor force, the muck and the mire of working through culture. And that when we come together, friends, we, we come out of all of that and we come into the, to the house of the Lord and we worship God. And that is the place where it reorients our soul. But that's not all worship does. It affects me another way that I think is really, really important. Look at this. Worship testifies to the reality of Christ to a watching world. You know, I read something this week in John 17 that I had missed over my life. Look at what Jesus said in John 17, verse 20. Jesus was praying, by the way. He was praying for you and me. He was praying to the Father, and this is what he said. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, praying for the disciples, that they may, be, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, look at this. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you know when you and I are one with the Father and where we're one with one another, do you know what that does? It tells a watching world who the Lord is. It tells a watching world that there is a God. Look at what Jesus said right in that last sentence. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Our oneness with God is a testimony in and of itself. Literally, it is a gospel message to the world. Our oneness with each other is a gospel message to the world. That we testify to that. So when I look at the book of Acts... What I see is that they did gather. And the last question I have is why was it a priority? It was a priority because when you see in Acts chapter 2, what you see is this really unique word. Look in verse 42. It says they were continually devoting themselves. Continually, ongoing, present tense, continually devoting themselves to what? To fellowship, to prayer. Now, that whole idea of devoting themselves, go, go to the next one there. They were devoted. They said they were devoted to fellowship. But I want to tell you, Spence, that word koinonia, that word idea of, of, of a oneness and a, and a partnership and, a, and an ethos there together with one another, I'm going to say to you, you can't have fellowship horizontally until you first have it vertically. They knew the Lord. And because they knew the Lord, they could know each other. You can't have the kind, listen, you cannot have the kind of oneness that they had in, in, as a church group. You can't have that unless you have oneness with the Father. And that's what they did. They had the favor of God on their lives. And that favor came because of their fervor. That favor came because they were fervent for God. And therefore, out of their fervency came the favor. You, it's, 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 I, don't know, I don't know that it's even possible to have the favor of God without fervency for God. Worship was a priority for these people. It was a priority for them. It was a priority. Because God's presence was a priority. His power comes through his presence. It wasn't just about church attendance. I want to show you a video from a man named Francis Chan. 
I love Francis Chan. He seems like the, maybe one of the nicest human beings ever. I love, I love his books. I love the way he preaches. He, seems, he left his mega church and kind of went into homeless ministry. It's just a fascinating story. But in doing some sermon research this week, he talks about, I ran up on a video clip of, of him getting a phone call from one of his mentors. And boy, it really stopped me. It's pretty short, but I just want you to hear it. One of my, really my biggest mentor on the earth um, is a pastor from India. And he called me a couple of months ago and he was crying on the phone, which he's never done this before. I mean, it's just, he's crying because he heard of another pastor in America who, who, who fell morally and, and it was grieving him. But, and he was apologizing for his tears, but as he was praying, he goes, he goes sometimes I, I come to your country and I talk to some of your leaders even, and I walk away going, God, I wish that person knew you. I go, wait, I wish he really knew Jesus. I don't get a sense like they really know him or really want to know him. They know a lot about him, but do they know him? And then he's weeping. He's not judging because he's crying. He goes, sometimes I feel like the people in America, they're happy to, 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 to hear from Moses. He goes, don't they know they can walk up the mountain themselves? He goes, but they're content just to talk to someone who's been up the mountain. Man, you can walk up and be in the presence. And he's just weeping on the phone, apologizing. Don't apologize. He just goes, I don't understand why they don't want to go up the mountain. Why wouldn't you want to go up there and just be in the presence of him? And sometimes we're content with the podcast, we're content with the book, we're content with the sermon, we're content to hear and take a selfie with someone who's been with Jesus. And he's saying, man, why don't they go up? God says, I want you to produce fruit and I want that fruit to abide. I want them to abide in me. I was talking to another pastor from India and he, he told me, he goes, Francis, I've been studying great movements of God. He goes, you know how movements start? He says, a movement starts when the founder really knows Jesus. And he says, you know how movements die? He says, when the followers only know the founder. That's pretty tough. Before we close this morning, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Flip backward just for a second. Jesus is talking about anxiety and life and pressure. And he says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp is the eye of the body, verse 22 says. But then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. Verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, Jesus is talking about money, but then Jesus takes it to a whole different level. He moves off of money, and he goes off on everything, all of our possessions. And he says to you, so for this reason, I I do say to you, do not be worried about your life. As to what you will eat or what you'll drink or what your body or as to what you will put on, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. And he goes into saying, look at how my father, you know, provides for them. And, and, and they're, they're just birds. And he picks up in verse 31. He says, don't worry, saying in verse 31, what will we eat or what are we going to drink? In other words, he's saying, don't chase the immediate. Don't chase the temporal. And then here's the verse 32. This is why I wanted you to read this passage with me this morning was for verse 32. He says, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. You know what he's saying, don't you? He's saying all the people that don't know Jesus, all the people that don't know me, all the people that don't know the heavenly father, they're living panic stricken. They're panic stricken. They seek, they do worry, they do seek, they do chase wealth, they do put up their treasures in things that corrode. But that's not you. Your father knows you need all these things. And then comes verse 33. But seek what? The kingdom now. Seek first his kingdom. And all these things will be given to you. All these things will be given to you. I want to leave you with this this morning, Christian. I want to leave you with this simple thought. When it comes to you living in the presence of God, that your heart's desire, my heart's desire, it will become my life's destination. That's what, that, that's, what that's saying to us right there. My heart's desire is going to become my life's destination. Whatever you seek, you're going, you know, whatever you're going to go looking after, that's what you're going to find. So my question to you is, What drives you? What drives you? Francis Chan was right. Most people are content to know the founder or take a selfie with people that have been up the hill. And I'm saying when you read about these people that you don't even know their name, if there's one thing we can say about them, They practiced the presence of God. And they lived there. And it changed everything. We are still talking about them 2,000 years later. Let's pray. With your eyes closed, I just want you to listen to me. I'm not going to ask you to come down here this morning. This is one of those words that I just wanted you to put into the depths of your bones. For I hope that you don't just deal with it in the next two minutes. I hope you soak on it for the next many days. I want you to come to a place where You're desiring the presence of God more than you desire anything else in your life. My life's destination will be determined by my heart's desire. So listen to me before I pray. If you want 
any of us to talk with you about who Jesus is and what it means to come into this kingdom life when this worship is over. Go straight to the back of the room. Brian Hatcher will be back there. One of our pastors will be back there waiting on you. When it's all over. Father God, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus. And we ask you, God, that you do a great and mighty work in us. That you do do something in us, God, that gives us the understanding of what it means to walk in the power of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And if it said anything about us in Franklin, let it be said that the people at Clearview Baptist Church, they desire you. Oh God, let that be us today. And that's my prayer. Hey, if anything in this sermon series or teaching series helped you, would you do us a favor? Email the link to a friend. Post it on Facebook. Tweet it out. I'm telling you, you'd be surprised at how often God can use you to reach somebody in a similar situation that just needs an injection of truth or encouragement or hope to move them further down the road in their walk with God. And always know, if you need us, you can go to clearview.org and contact us and somebody will be in touch. 